Um, so we're going to be mostly looking at the Passover story tonight, and, and there's, there's really kind of two parts to this process, or two parts to what we're going to do tonight. The first is sort of rehearsing and just remembering, calling to mind, if you will, some of the things that you probably already know about the Passover, uh, just bringing to mind some of the things that are very important uh, in the story. Remember, in this study that we're going through, we're trying to take a look at the Old Testament as a whole and remove a lot of the fear from the Old Testament. Um, I don't know about you, growing up as a kid, the Old Testament scared me to death. There, and for two reasons. One, because there were a lot of names and places in there that I did not know or understand. I didn't know where they were and didn't understand what was being communicated there. And there's also, if you notice, when you read the Old Testament, there's some things sometimes that are stated in the verses, and they state it like you're supposed to know this. And it's like, oh, he named it, he called his name this, and then just went on. And like, that's supposed to mean something to you. Why, why was that important? Um, so there's that, the removal of fear that we want to do to just kind of take away some of the fear as we go through the story of the Old Testament. The other part is to connect some of these uh, significant events and places and people um, to the New Testament and to help us understand why these things are really significant. And part of that involves understanding the historical significance behind some of these places. When they go to certain places, what, what's significant about that and why should we take notice of those, those things? Tonight, I think, is probably one of my favorite connections that I ever made in any time in studying the Bible, I think. Um, was one that we're going to talk about tonight. I've mentioned it before, but we're going to talk a little bit about it tonight uh, in this, this Passover story. Now, just to, just to call to mind some of the things that we've talked about already, um, these things are somewhat of a review, but, but things that we're, we're, we've got a, a pretty decent idea, at least to guess. These things are not written down in the Bible, but they're sort of the, ba the historical background of the Bible, what we think is going on, or at least the approximate timeline that we think is going on. Um, according to what we think would be the early date of the Exodus, which is what I, I, I think is, is right, we're looking at 1446. Remember, being that, that, uh, that approximate year when the whole story begins to unfold and Moses begins to go back to um, Pharaoh at the time and begins to kind of uh, speak into the situation and the plagues start to come. That all starts, we think, at about 1446. I think it's a pretty good uh, guess. And based on, and we base that on the temple being built in 966 and the Old Testament uh, chronicles, they're saying it was 480 years from the date of the Exodus. Now, if that is, if they're pointing to the beginning of the Exodus, which would be the plagues, then that would be 1446. So it's going to be somewhere close to there, maybe give or take a year uh, or two. And so that would mean that if that's the case, then probably the Pharaoh that's on the throne at the time is Amenhotep II. And so that, uh, and, and Amenhotep is the one who is on the throne as Moses goes to deliver the plagues, all the stuff that we're reading basically in Exodus, as he goes to give the plagues to um, the Pharaoh, as he goes back out of the land of Midian, he's back in there, and the children of Israel led out of Egypt. That's, if the timeline we got is right, it's going to be probably Amenhotep II that is that Pharaoh in the center of the story. Now, in the plagues that happen in Egypt, what we do know for sure is that it's evident in the text God is judging the Egyptian gods 
and the Egyptian people um, for their enslavement over the, the children of Israel. And we also know that, that it uh, uh, serves a twofold purpose. The, the plagues, for one, did serve to condemn uh, Pharaoh for his enslavement of the Hebrew people, but it also served to remind the people of Israel exactly who God is. You have to remember, they, they've been in, in Egypt for some 400 years. So the stuff that has been baked into the children of Israel now in the land of Egypt is entrenched at this point. Sure, they, they know enough to call out to God, but there's no doubt some of the culture that has seeped into their hearts, and it's obvious because God actually tells Moses this in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. He tells him, look, we're gonna, I'm going to judge Pharaoh, but I'm also doing this for you and for all the children so that you can continue to remind generation after generation after generation that these plagues that are coming on Pharaoh were done by the mighty hand of God and that there was no question about that. And we see that unfold throughout the Old Testament and, in fact, even into the New Testament we saw in Revelation, that these are reminders for the children of Israel that, indeed, God has taken us out. When your children ask, why do these things happen? Tell them, because God delivered us out of the, out of the land of Egypt. That's where you start. God, remember, God delivered us out of, the hand of, out of the land of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and this is what happened as a result of that. And all of the stuff that we are, all the land we're living in, all the things that we do now are as a result of God rescuing his people. So it served as a reminder to the children of Israel as much as it did a judgment against Pharaoh and against the people of Egypt and against the gods that were represented there. And remember, we saw, we walked through the last two weeks, uh, we've walked through the the 10 plagues and the specific gods that are being judged here, or at least the pantheon of gods that are being uh, judged there in the plagues. Okay. Um, any questions about that? You've had a few weeks to be- sit on that and think about it, but has there been any questions that have popped up that you thought, uh, I need to ask this or I won't? Anything? Yeah, that, and that's what we spent a lot of time talking about last week is that, you know, it, it, for our, our culture, it's, it's taken us a, a handful of years since the Obergefell decision of the Supreme Court to all of a sudden kind of become immune to seeing, uh, you know, a, 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 ring, a jewelry commercial where two guys are, you know, one guy's proposing to another. And it's taken us four years until we're like, uh, it's just kind of normal now. And imagine what happens in 400 years, <laughs> how where things go from there and how inundated we become and how, how much that sort of just sort of seeps into our conscious. And we, we, we don't think about it the same way we did in 2015 where there was a lot of lamenting over this, you know, transpiring. Now, here we're, so we're going into, we, we talked about the 10th plague last week, but now we're, we're talking about the events that took place right before and right after that 10th plague, which we come to know as the Passover. So the 10th and final plague, which is the slaughter of the firstborn of Egypt, um, was absolutely the most horrendous of them all. And we spent a good deal of time talking about last week how, how Pharaoh himself is seen and depicted as a god. He is kind of the 
God in the flesh, so to speak, the son of Ra, and he is, um, he is mighty and he gets all of his authority from, from Ra himself. And so to destroy the firstborn was significant, particularly in the house of Pharaoh. Pharaoh's house was not immune from this plague in any way. And so there, there were, again, two, a twofold uh, purpose here to the Egyptians. It indicated the superiority of Yahweh over all of the gods, in particular over Pharaoh and over life and death itself. But to Israel, it reinforced and spoke to his gracious deliverance and salvation. And it also carried this significance for the Hebrew people for their entire history. Um, and even we see this uh, to, this, to this very day. You'll even find some liberal Jews who will still celebrate the Passover. Now, they may eat bacon in front of a rabbi on the, every other day of the week. But when it comes to a Passover, a lot of them will still celebrate the Seder meal as some sort of a, you know, a, a tradition. And so this deliverance out of Egypt is still recognized, at least in story form, even to this day. But leading up to even Jesus' day, a prominent aspect of their society is in the celebration of feasts and festivals, and the head of that festival would have been um, the festival of the Passover. I mean, Rosh Hashanah, which would be the, the first of the year, their, their New Year's, the, the Passover happens just 14 days later. I mean, so it's, it's you know, their, their head of the year is not, not that far removed from, um, from the Passover. Um, okay, so now the Hebrew people, this is, this is the connection that I did not make until much later on in life. But, and I, I'm sure at some point somebody pointed it out to me, and I, to be honest, I just don't remember. Um, but the Hebrew people are instructed uh, th- uh, by God through Moses to ask for gold and silver from the Egyptians. Now, this is really, really important. They were told to ask for gold and silver from the Egyptians. In fact, as the the 10th plague happened, one of the benefits of the 10th plague was that the, the Egyptian people, they didn't just, they weren't just okay seeing their slaves walk out the door. They demanded that their slaves leave. Okay? That's the difference. Moses is told at the end of the ninth plague, don't you ever show your face around me again. Uh, Remember the the ninth plague is the plague of darkness. And so the lights come back on and Pharaoh says, I don't want to ever see your face again. I liked it better in the dark. Okay. And so Moses is like, fine, you'll never see me again. And then next chapter, he's right there telling Pharaoh, you're about to lose your firstborn son, by the way, is the last kind of last ditch effort sort of deal. And so uh, he They're told by God through Moses to ask for gold and silver. And so then the death of the the firstborn comes along and the people of Egypt wanted to drive them out. Now, the gold and silver, let's go ahead and read that that passage, by the way, there. You've got your your passage list attached here to your handout. Exodus 11.2 and Exodus 12.35-36. If somebody wouldn't mind reading that out loud, real loud.
Okay, so you see there the before and the after. The, the, the people are giving, they ask for gold and silver, and the, the, uh, the Egyptians are giving them gold and silver. Now, the reason the gold and silver is important is because it proves useful. Why? We've talked about this a couple of times before. Why is it useful? What happens at the end of Exodus? They're going to build the tabernacle. And, and this is a, a fundamental part of the, of the book of Exodus is that the Hebrew people are not just released from the hand of Pharaoh. They're released and they're given all of the Egyptians gold and silver. And the purpose for getting the gold and silver is so that when they get to the end of the book of Exodus, they are able to build a tabernacle. What's the purpose of the tabernacle? To worship God, but specifically so God can be with his people. Think about this for just a second. In Gen- at the very beginning of Genesis, what do we see? We see man and woman in a garden, and they're with, they're with God. They enjoy fellowship with God, unencumbered fellowship with God. And what do they do? They sin. And from the point that they sin... God's relationship to man is no longer unencumbered. There's sin in the way. And so if you look at humanity this way, if there's been hundreds of years where there's been just a soured relationship, so to speak, that's putting it mildly, between God and man, and here is God creating for himself a people out of Abraham, bringing them into the the land of Egypt. They have nothing. They have nothing going into the land of Egypt brings them into the land of Egypt, into, into, uh, eventually into slavery. And when they come out, they, they come out as slaves. What are they going to take with them? Nothing. Well, after ten plagues and the death of the firstborn, they give them gold and silver, and God then will instruct them, use that gold and silver to build a place where we can meet. A tent of meeting. Where Moses and God can come together and Moses can intercede on behalf. We'll talk more about that in many weeks to come. But it's to build the tabernacle. And, and I, this is the connection I didn't make till later on in life. I, I, you see that and, you, and to me that's so profound and so uh, amazing that God would do this to meet with his people. It's amazing. But this also... The resources that are given to the children, to the uh, from from the Egyptians to the Hebrew people, also fulfill what was spoken to Abraham in Genesis fifteen fourteen. Somebody see that on their their out uh, their handout there and just read that out loud. Genesis fifteen fourteen. Remember, he tells Abraham this, that I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make of you a great nation. I'm going to do all of these things. And when he starts, chapter 15 is where God starts to kind of pull back the curtain a little bit. He's told him just a little bit before this, but in 15, he pulls back the curtain a lot. He tells him a lot about what's going to happen in the future. And one of those things is you'll have tons of people, but they're, and they're going to have this land, but not right now because the sin of the Amorites is not full. So first, I'm going to send them into captivity. They're going to sit down there for 400 years. And when they come out, they're going to come out with a ton of possessions. 
Now, he doesn't tell him necessarily that that's going to be for building a tabernacle and for doing lots of other things and for trade and things like that. But it, 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 it proves, once again, God has promised to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. Through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And what do we see time and time again throughout Genesis and now even in Exodus? That in spite of the fact that his people were enslaved, they came out rich. That should tell you everything that you need. If you're reading this, you're, a, you're I don't care what century you're in, you're, you're reading this and you're saying the slaves came out loaded. That's unbelievable. How does that happen? That never happens. I mean, we even have slavery as a, as a history here in this country. Slaves that left the South, they, they didn't end up rich. So, that's amazing. That doesn't happen in slavery. And here you've got them, the Egyptians going, take everything, just go. Please, just leave. Now, um, the description that is given to Moses for the Passover um, is, obviously, it's filled with meaning, has tons of connections that we're going to spend some time on this week, and then we'll spend a little bit more time next week I have loosely in my mind for next week actually kind of doing a, a very trimmed down version of a Seder meal, just kind of walking through what we think is going on in the Passover and talking about its significance. If I balk on that, don't hate me. Uh, I'll come back to it another time. But that's what I've got in my mind right now um, that we'll, we'll spend some time doing. But it's obviously it's filled with meaning. We, we see the connections that are being made in the, in the New Testament between the Passover meal and between Jesus. So we're going to walk through some of that. Let's talk first about the significance of the Passover meal, what's happening in the Passover meal as it's first given to Moses. And so what we know is that uh, every Israelite, um, uh, at least every Israelite household, is to select a lamb. And they're to select the lamb on the 10th day of the month of Abib. That later became known as the month of Nisan. Okay, once the children of Israel go into Babylonian captivity, which we'll get to later on, but once they go into Babylon, Babylonian captivity, the, some of the names of their months change. So when you see the month of Nisan, which is the first, their first month of the year, the month of Nisan is the same thing as the month of Abib. So we'll, I'll refer to them both as kind of the same thing. But it's that on the 10th day of the month, they are to take a lamb, they're to select that lamb that's going to be brought to the slaughter. So the, you got a list of passages there. Somebody read Exodus 12, 2 to 3. Somebody read 13.4, which should be the next passage. Today in the month of Abib, you are going out. All right, so we, we've got kind of well-established, this is the command that's given to them. This, and, and it's told specifically to Moses, this is setting a pattern for you, so take note of it and teach it a lot, because y'all are going to do this every year. All right, just get used to it. Okay, so get used to the pattern. Here, this is the first pattern that's ever been that's being laid out for them. Okay, God's teaching them essentially. All right. So then the next thing, uh, 
So this one-year-old male lamb, it can also be translated goat. And so it could be a lamb or it could be a goat. And we're not sure how, I think at some point it becomes just a lamb, but at some point it could also have been a goat that was being used. Um, So this one-year-old male lamb without blemish was to be selected on the 10th day uh, and then kept until the 14th day when it was slaughtered. I have that up there? Yeah. Uh, That it would be kept until the 14th day, so just four days later, and it was going to be slaughtered. And it says between the evenings. And it, so there's some ambiguity here. There's the moment when the sun goes down, like when the sun's starting to set, they called that evening. And then they called the time when it was complete and total darkness, uh, the second evening. And so the slaughtering of the lamb happened between the evenings. But what happened, it seems like later on, as it sort of evolved, was the time between 3 p.m. and 6 p.m. became the slaughtering of the lambs. So think about this, and we'll talk more about this in just a minute, but the, the nation of Israel grows. There's a lot of people. There begins to be a lot of lambs that are being sacrificed. There begins to be a temple where really one man is, is slaughtering is. The temple is kind of like a butcher house. I mean, really. And there's tons of lambs there. So time is of the essence, right? If you're going to slaughter it between the evenings. So it seemed like at some point in their time period, 3 to 6 p.m. became the time when the lambs were slaughtered. Okay, that's going to prove significant later on. I'll show you why. Um, all right, so we, uh, we have there tw- uh, Exodus 12, 3 to 6. Somebody read that out loud. All right, now all of the, the whole lamb had to be gone. So, you know, you get my family. I've got a, a six, four, and two-year-old, very picky eaters and doesn't eat much. We're probably going to partner with our neighbors, all right, in some of this. Because <laughs> there's not a chance Andrea and I can devour that whole lamb. <laughs> but anyway, um, so, so there, there's some accommodations that are being made for, fall, for small families um, <laughs> like ours. But the point was that then you would take, after the slaughtering of the lamb, the blood of the lamb is going to be applied to the two side posts of the door and the lintel, which is over the top of the door, with a, uh, a sprig of hyssop. So that's going to be painted on the doorpost. And we know the angel of, the, of death is going to come through the land of Egypt and is going to slaughter the firstborn child inside any household that the household does not have the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Obviously, latent with biblical imagery there and New Testament imagery for sure, which we're going to spend a little bit more time on next week, but I think that one's a little bit more obvious. Um, we, we see there um, that the angel of death is passing over the houses of the people that have the blood of the lamb on it. Um, then we also see that the entire, uh, ro- the entire roasted flesh of the lamb was then to be eaten, and it was to be eaten with what? With unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Okay, look, somebody read Exodus 12, 8. 
just like I told you, <laughs> in case you didn't believe me. Um, now, what was the purpose of eating the unleavened bread? You recall. It was fast food. Yeah. Go ahead. Shannon just gave you the next point. Four days in between getting a, um, a lamb, and before you can um, slaughter it, yes, you've got. So why are we waiting four days for that? But the unleavened bread is. Um, because a lot of the preparation there goes into on the fourteenth day, and on the fourteenth day they're eating staff in hand, fully dressed robe girded because on the 14th day they're headed out and so that that's really the point you're not baking bread four days out you're baking bread day of and you don't have time for it to rise so you know no no preservatives no things like that they're baking day of most of it seemed like what's i mean really most of the rest of the world is living hand to mouth still and so you got a bunch of slaves. They're, they're really hand-to-mouth, and they don't yet have all the gold from Egypt. So they're, uh, they're, it's day of preparation, I mean, for the most part. Now, they're, they're selecting their lamb beforehand, but they're, they're not killing it yet. You know, they're, they're going to do it day of, and that day of is going to be a, a quick day. All right. Um, all right. And so, yeah, they don't, they don't uh, put leaven in the bread because they don't have time for the bread to rise. And this is where spring cleaning comes from. This is where that, that uh, the uh, Jews going through their house looking for leaven and clearing it out. This is the purpose of their spring cleaning is get, get, pull everything out of its cabinets, get rid of every nook and cranny that might have a hint of yeast in it. In fact, in the Seder meal, there's a part in the day before the Seder meal takes place where the head of the household goes through with the kids with a flashlight or with a lantern or with whatever and looks in corner to corner and says, you know, looks for all the yeast. And if it's it, it, to his, you know, there, there's a little statement that they, they read at the end of it that all, all of the yeast is gone out of my household. And if any is left over, let it be to the dust of the earth. Basically, that, that I'm, if, if there is any that I missed, I'm not claiming responsibility for it. I wasn't trying to keep that, you know. But the yeast is supposed to be gone because you're supposed to remember that the original group that left Egypt didn't have time for the bread to rise because God was going to send the angel of death in and he was going to kill the firstborn and Egyptians were going to demand that, that the Israelites leave. Okay. Questions on that part quickly because I got to get to the next section. <laughs> All right. Um, in, in his book, uh, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ, Harold Honer argues that Jesus was crucified in the year 33 AD. Now, I don't want to quibble too much on the year. That may be right. It may be seven years before that. It's kind of tough to tell. Um, but let's take 33 AD as an example. This will help kind of just lay out what's going on, at least at the beginnings of this Seder meal that Jesus is walking through with his disciples. Um, on the 10th of Nisan, which would be, yeah, uh, which would be in AD 33, uh, 
that would have put the 10th of Nisan as Palm Monday, which Jesus would have made his triumphal entry into the city of uh, Jerusalem riding on a donkey on the 10th of Nisan. Here the lamb who is going to be slain uh, for the salvation of his people is selected on the 10th of Nisan. The significant, I think. There's a connection that's being made there and that we're supposed to make in the New Testament that often just kind of goes past us because he's writing in on, uh, best we can tell in the text, 10, uh, the 10th of Nisan, which would have been the day that the lamb was selected. So the lamb here is selected by the father instead of the children. Um, now, on the 14th of Nisan, as guests entered the family member's house to celebrate the Passover, a servant or slave would wash the feet of the guests. Now, look at what's happening in John 13, 3 to 20. This is where the story is a little bit different. John 13, 3 to 20. I have it here somewhere, don't I? Do I not? Yeah, I do. Okay. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from the supper, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. Jesus answered him, What I am doing you don't understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash, except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread and lifted his heel against me has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Look at the next two verses there. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and of all and a servant of all. 
Mark 10, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Do you notice his connection to his service and his death on the cross? His becoming a slave and his death on the cross. Look at John 13, 15. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. So Jesus takes the role of a slave in a traditional Seder meal and washes the feet of the guests that are there, proving himself to be a servant of all. And we know that he's not only a servant in the house at the Seder meal, but Paul even tells us he's going to the cross, and in his cross is a perfect depiction of humility. even unto death, even death on the cross. And what I find amazing about that is we don't, have to, we don't even have to read the rest of the Bible to get this. We just, just that one passage. Jesus connects what he's just done with everyone else that would follow after Every single person that follows after me, every single person that calls himself a Christian should serve others to the degree that I'm serving you. Because a slave's not better than his master. And you've called me teacher and Lord, and you're right to do so. But don't pretend that you're greater than me. If I served, you should serve. To what extent? When you see Jesus quit, you can quit. That's the point. Crazy. Um, on the 14th of Nisan, the Passover lambs were slain between uh, noon and, and 3 p.m. And then, I, said, I think I said 3 and 5. Where did I get that? Uh, 3 and 6. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't remember why I wrote that down. But... Put it down. I'll clarify next week. Uh, on the day that Jesus died, there were three hours of darkness between noon and three. Um, and so this would have been between the sixth hour of the day and between the ninth hour of the day that, um, that there was complete darkness across the land as Jesus hung there on the cross on the 14th of Nisan. There's three hours of darkness. Look at Mark 15, 33. Really quick. Mark 15, 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Um, so then what do we see? Uh, next is that the temple curtain is torn. Sometime between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m., which is directly following uh, Jesus crying out. It, it says there in Mark 15, 38, he says, in the curtain tore uh, from uh, the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. That happens di almost directly after Mark 15, 33, the verse we just read. So the ninth hour would have been, the sixth hour would have been noon. The ninth hour would have been three. Right after that, Mark reports that he cried out. There was a couple of events that took place of them giving him vinegar on a sponge. And then the temple curtain tearing in two. At the moment that, um, I know why I put that now. I just just dawned on me. The, 
lambs were slain, but then presented before the altar would have been 3 to 6 p.m. That's what it was. So you have, when the temple tears in two, we know that in 70 A.D., which would have been 40 years following Jesus' uh, crucifixion, at least, um, there, were, there was reported 270,000 lambs that were slain. Um, did everybody get that? I think I, did I skip anyone? Did I skip a blank? Sorry. Come on. Nope. Previous. Let's go. I think it was three hours of darkness. There was, it was three hours of darkness, if that was the one you're missing. Three hours of darkness. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. This is not a professional show here, guys. So you just, you just know. Uh, three hours of darkness, yeah, was the blank if you missed it. There, so there were three hours of darkness there. And then we know, we have a report, a recording that in the year 70 AD, the last known recording of, of sacrifices, right before the temple is destroyed, there are 270,000 lambs that were, that were slain and sacrificed then between the hours of three and five. So basically, as Jesus hangs there on the cross and says, into your hands I commit my spirit, and dies, gives up the ghost, the temple curtain is torn in two, and there lay probably somewhere close to 270,000 lambs that are being ushered in to be burnt at the altar. That kind of gives you a picture of the sort of butcher house that's going on there. It's a butcher house. The temple is a butcher house. That's essentially what it is. Yeah. And there's one guy, the high priest, that's responsible for taking it in. And I'm sure some of this had changed, you know, over the years. But, yeah, essentially that's, that's what's taking place. Um, so then when the lambs were slain, they would begin to chant the halal hymns, which, which halal means praise. It's where we get our, our word hallelujah. Hallel means praise. Lu means you, you praise. And then Yah means the Lord, praise you the Lord. And so um, they would chant the halal hymns, which we, I preached from Psalm 118 not that long ago, which is a, a hymn of triumphal entry of the king going up to the steps of the temple, which is really profound when you read it. Um, so essentially what we've got here in the connection to the Passover, um, you know, some of the not so obvious things that we'll talk about, we'll talk about next week, some of the not so obvious things is Jesus taking off his robe and serving the people that are there as a slave, which is why they push back so hard. Like, not nah, you shouldn't be doing this. And yet here Jesus is saying, look, uh, I am serving you. And we see that as evident of his death on the cross as he lays there or as is crucified there on the cross in three hours of darkness as the paschal lambs are brought to the slaughter and killed. And then when they're brought to the sacrifice, he dies and as the lambs are sacrificed and the temple curtain is torn in two, the, the curtain that separated the people from God. Now he has gone in and made perfect atonement to ensure that we no longer have separation between us and the Lord. Powerful imagery coming from Passover. Questions, comments, thoughts? Michael, I guess without the temple, there's no, none of this happened 
That is correct. That is correct. Which is a good question to ask a Jew. I, I, um, I, I was privileged enough to work with uh, an Israelite who served in the Israeli military and everything and was, was working with me and was an atheist. And I said, um, what do you do with your sin? What do Jews now do with their sin? And you'd be amazed. Some of them don't believe you do sin, so there's that. You know, that's, that's a totally different discussion that you have to have. But um, when you ask them that, they, most of them will hem-haw around a little bit about it and not ever really come to a satisfactory answer. Because I think truth be told, they're not satisfied with the answer they have to give, which is I guess we just sit on it, which is a good foray into the gospel. Let me show you what's happened in the Passover that Jesus celebrated with his disciples and what he's claiming about himself. I think more powerful is the imagery that comes from the bread that he holds up and breaks and the cup that he holds up and drinks that we're going to talk more about next week. We'll at least talk about it if I don't do a whole Seder meal. <laughs> so, go ahead, Blake. I mean, just the, the smell of the burning flesh that's going to be in the nostrils of everyone that's in, you know, I'm assuming it smelled like a barbecue, which might not have been that bad. I don't know. But, um, but just the thought, like, you know what that smells like. You know what that feels like. And, and to know that after this is all done, after we go through this big thing of 270,000 lambs, we're going to do it all again next year. And we're going to come back and do the same thing. And it's, and, it's, and it's all designed to really get the picture that, guys, this is not enough. You get that this is not, this is not satisfactory. And then when we read, like Blake was talking about, the first five books of the Bible, sometimes, outside of maybe Genesis, maybe a little bit of Exodus, a lot of it is sometimes kind of the boring parts. And we're like, oh, man, i got to make it through Numbers. i got to make it through Leviticus. But if you, if you turn it around and you say, in these five books is sort of laying the foundation for God meeting with his people, that he's coming back to them in spite of their sin, he's laying the foundation for us continuing to commune with one another. He's, he's setting the ground rules before they can walk into his presence. And that's, that's really all those sacrifices are establishing. It's just you being near me it's going to at least take this. That's incredible. But it's not sufficient. Quickly, Timothy, because Tom's going to be yelling at me here in a second.
There it goes again. which is the greatest miracle of all, right? It's the greatest miracle of all that you, and we take it for granted because we're 2,000 years removed from it, we don't understand the significance like the apostles do, that you can, through prayer and work, just walk into the presence of God. That the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you as a Christian. That is unheard of for these fishermen who are following Jesus. They don't know anything about that. Yeah. Amazing. Well, let's pray or Tom's going to kill me. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to just come together and just think about how great it is that you have sent your son to die for us, that we might be in your presence for all of eternity, that we might be included in your kingdom not as slaves, but as sons and daughters. What an incredible thought that is and, and something we'll never get over thinking about. I pray that it would lead us into a worship that is sincere, that is rich, that is deep and everlasting, that we are eternally grateful and always amazed that we're included in your family. Pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.